Welcome to Three Thoughts On. This is Rafael, and today my guest is Martin O'Day. Martin is the CEO of Longevity Events Limited and is the principal organizer of the annual Longevity Summit Dublin. He has been involved in the longevity space for more than 10 years. He is an author and one of the early contributors to the International Longevity Alliance. Martin sits on the board of the Lev Foundation, which was set up by Aubrey de Grey with a mission to prevent and reverse human age-related disease. Martin's interests are varied and include areas relating to human advancement through technological and biological development. Martin and I met here in Lake Nona a couple of years ago through a common friend and found out quickly that we share a passion for human advancement. Our conversation touched on some interesting areas of the longevity movement, as well as some of the basics of lifespan and health span. I am sure you will enjoy this conversation. And now, Martin O'Day. Welcome to Three Thoughts On. Today, we continue our series on longevity, and my guest today is Martin O'Day. Martin, how are you doing today? Wonderful. Never better. Thank you, Martin, for making the time. I know you are you have a pretty busy travel schedule, so I'm grateful that you're making time to be here with us today. Before we get started and dive in into the topic of longevity, can you take a couple of minutes and tell us and tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what were some of the things that led you on a path to be doing what you're doing today? Okay, yeah, thanks for, for inviting me, Raphael. It's nice to talk to you. Um, I guess I, I curiosity brought me to this field about 15 years ago um, when it was very small. It was just really the scientists that were interested in the biology of aging at that time. Um, and... I met uh, Aubrey de Grey in 2010 in London, um, <clears throat> and I guess his conceptualization of this whole uh, the paradigm that we had and should have uh, really struck a chord with me. Um, so for many years, he spoke about metabolism, damage, and disease, and seeing those things as as a continuum, um, and not splitting the idea of aging and disease as being two separate things, but the disease being the end point of the aging process within specific organs. Um, and therefore damage repair being the, you know, the intelligent way of addressing diseases as well as aging. That really struck a chord with me a long time ago. Uh, and it always felt like it would permeate society at some point. Um, and to be honest with you, it feels like 2023, 2024 is that point. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just fortunate that I happened across it back then. It was a small community and I got to know all the main, a lot of the main players quite well. Um, and so I went on, I, I did little bits of advocacy and hung around the community and went to conferences over the years and then kind of led my own conference around 2018, 2019. I tried building this out and then 2020, we were ready to go in 2020 and, and the COVID uh, regulations came in. So um, 2022, we launched the Longevity Summit Dublin. Um, I'm fortunate to work with Aubrey again on his foundation. And I'm also currently 
working a lot towards creating a longevity club um, where we leverage, I guess, those connections I built up over the years with literally the leading, you know, dozen or 20 people in the field, um, but leverage a, a substantial portion of that to bringing basically the, 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 the very top end of what's possible to um, members of the club, we'll say, um, at the moment and going forward. So, yeah, I don't know if that if that's a reasonable summary. No, no, that's that's perfect. That's perfect. Let's let's dive into this because you you mentioned a couple of things and there's a, a few buzzwords that people use today when they talk about this particular topic and. You haven't been in it like you mentioned. You you were in there 15 years ago when it wasn't mainstream, when a few people were only the ones talking about it. And those that were talking about it were knee-deep into the science part of it and not necessarily the marketing part of it. So if you fast forward to today, everybody's talking about it. And that is very good, but it also brings a lot of confusion to the everyday person, right? And... I think it's very important to separate the science and the foundations of longevity, aging, lifespan, health span from the marketing that tends to uh, get to people fairly quickly. So in your experience, if you, if you look back at 15 years ago when you first got exposed to this and you started working with these scientists – and then you fast forward till today. What would you say are some of the, let's just pick three, because this is a three thoughts on podcast. Three th biggest misconceptions about the space that you're working in right now. I think a lot of it comes down to the idea that lifestyle interventions and longevity are the same thing. Everything is connected to longevity. Everything we've done from, you know, childhood immunization to better control of heart disease and so on. Of course, that extends average uh, lifespan and, and health span. Um, and yes, your diet, your lifestyle, all of that is super important and, you know, will allow you to extend the healthy period of your life and your life itself to a degree. But I think that being kind of mistakenly equated with biology of aging research is a big problem. Um, and these things should be complementary, but not one recognized as meaning the other, um, which it is not. Like, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but if you live a perfect life in, in whatever kind of environmental lifestyle type uh, setup that we create, um, I, I don't know for sure, and I'm not sure anyone knows for sure what the benefits of that are. And they are substantial, but they have a limit. We, we don't see people who live frugal, really healthy lives pushing out lifespan. And we don't, we do see them pushing out health span for sure. Um, and it's interesting to see, look, I, don't, I guess nobody has lived the way we're living currently. We forget when we say, oh, where, where is the 130-year-old? We forget how long it takes to get to 130, I think, sometimes. Um, and we forget that anyone that's aged 90 or 100 now was born in the 1920s. And what access did they have to different, you know, behaviors and, and lifestyles for the first 50 years of their life? So 
it's difficult to know how much we can gain from current lifestyle interventions, but it is certainly limited. And what's the attempt to, to, to look at the biology of aging is, is a different field. It's complementary, but it's, it's not the same thing. So it's the idea of looking at damage as it accumulates and repairing that damage through medical interventions. Um, and there's a variety of proposed interventions. There are some that we're already doing or on the cusp of doing. And I think one of the best answers to this question, you know, people ask, again, not to be over um, talking about one individual, people do ask Aubrey repeatedly, what would you do for your longevity? And he says, I would invest money in aging research. I think that's a really good answer. I'm not suggesting for a second that you shouldn't live healthily. And if we if we look at this as a ramp that we're trying to, you know, exit, then absolutely you're buying yourself substantial time for coming interventions if you live very healthily. Sorry, that's only one misconception. I've talked about it for a long time. But <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. I think it's really essential at the moment because everyone has, like, there's an, an awful lot of people, there's people that are very authoritative with YouTube channels that speak as if they are, um, I was trying to use an analogy for this recently. It's like they're in the foot, foothills of a mountain and they are explaining to everybody what the mountain looks like. But there are people that have been almost to the top of this mountain or have climbed a lot of it 25 years ago and, and the others are arriving on the scene and pretending like they don't exist kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it, it's great that longevity is so topical. It's, it's wonderful. It's amazing. And a spotlight is being shone on it. But I think the spotlight needs redirection a little bit from just lifestyle intervention. Yeah, no, and, and I think that that is interesting. The idea that lifestyle intervention is limited to me is actually relatively new because mm. for, for a number of years, I think I was on the bandwagon that that was the holy grail. You know, if I do all these wonderful things, you know, and you hear about blue zones, et cetera, you do all these different things, you know, you, yeah. you read all these different things and you think that, well, that's it. And now we're finding out, at least I am finding out now, because this is new to me, that there's also the other side of that coin, which is what you're saying is, is that the biology of identification of damage and then the repair of that damage and then the prevention of that damage. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Atia, Dr. Peter Atia. He just, he just wrote a book on, on longevity and I was listening to a podcast, him talking with Sam Harris and I love, love you, love your thoughts on this, but he, he said something that in my mind was, again, this is all very new to me. I'm, I'm certainly not an expert, but I'm very curious about it. He says, he says something along the lines that at least in his research, he found out that if people did certain things, like what happens in these blue zones, right, where people tend to live uh, more active lives for a bit longer, that to his surprise, people end up dying of the exact same things as everybody mm -hmm. else is, is dying. Uh, they still get cancer. They still get heart disease. They still get all the various things that we get. They just get there later in life and they end up having more years of adequate activity, right? So instead of dying at 80 of a of heart disease, they end up dying at 102, but they still die of the same thing, right? And I think in my mind, at least, I'd love you to, to correct me if I'm wrong, in my mind that basically attests to what you just said is, is 
one thing is lifestyle and aversion, intervention and leading to lifespan, yeah. but then what about the disease? And what about the prevention and identification of that disease process? Am I in the, in the right ballpark here? Absolutely. And again, I'm not an expert as well. So this is just kind of absorption of information and listening to conversations for all those years. Um, yeah, I think that's that's exactly it. And like I said, these, these really shouldn't be an either or type conversation. I mean, of course, you would like at, at the current stage, it's still true that the best thing you can do is lifestyle because lifestyle is a very substantial gain. It's it's 10 percent or so. Um, for health and I'm sorry lifestyle for lifespan and health span is a 10% gain we think which is enormous like just enormous but there may be a number of percent gain from like a proper administered senolytic in a couple of years time Um, and and let's just imagine that's a 5% gain that would be you know an extraordinary boost on top of that and I'm not suggesting that that would be the case, but just an illustrative thing. Um, the lifestyle, I guess, has a limit in this. The business of being alive kills you eventually. You know, metabolism is beyond our control. It's just too complicated. It's just too many things going on to manage. We can slow down the damage somewhat. But yeah, like we don't see with all the ways that people have lived over the centuries, and I know most of those are, you know, in times where you're exposed to a lot of things you're not exposed to now. But even still, with all the, you know, the monastic lifestyles or all these different things that have been tried, we really don't see people living outlying health spans, never mind lifespans. So I think there is that, that it shouldn't be a negative story. It really shouldn't. These are like things that should complement each other. You do the best you can in terms of your metabolism and in terms of lifestyle and stress and all of those things. And you get yourself that additional 10 years, perhaps, or whatever the, the number is. Maybe it's less than that. It depends. If you're going to have a heart attack in your 40s, then it can be 40, 50 years that it's added to you to have a particular lifestyle, right? Mm-hmm. But on average, it looks like it's 10 years or less. But that's enormous. That's a huge thing. But but the point of the matter is that. When we talk about damage repair, then I think maybe people balk at that a little bit and balk at the idea that you could repair the damage entirely. And so you could retain the, the youthful risk of death every single year. But I would add one other thing into that, though. When, when we look at the specific diseases, we are all in support of alleviating or eliminating those. So if it's cardiovascular disease, if it's cancer, if it's a neurodegenerative disease, Nobody will say, I don't think you should try to fix that. Okay. But what we're really discussing here is that damage is like the mother disease. And all of these are children. You know what I mean? The, they're just organ-based systems that uh, deteriorate to a point where we call them a disease. But that deterioration has been happening at a cellular and molecular level for a long time. Now, if someone walked into a, a conference and said, I have a way to prevent heart disease, nobody has a problem with that. If they walked in and said, I have a way to prevent Alzheimer's, prevent Alzheimer's, no one has a problem with that either. But if they walk in and say, I have a way to prevent all of those diseases, people start to have difficulties, <laughs> um, which is just, again, I think, uh, a, a point of psychology more than biology. Um, and it's something people can get, they can repeat exposures it's such a shift in how we understand our relationship to the world that it's not surprising that our minds go into defense mode 
and look for problems and reasons why this isn't true. It's, it's like a natural reaction. But repeat exposures and thought normally lead people or nearly always lead people to embrace this. Um, and I think that's what I hope happens more than anything else. There's, the fact that people are on this longevity bandwagon, now, which is amazing, if they just see it as a lifestyle intervention-based bandwagon, then I think that's a missed opportunity. I think we need to have people explore the science a little bit more thoroughly and appreciate what people have been doing. for Since the 90s, really, this has been an active field. Geroscience has been a, a, an active field of research. Very small, very, very poorly funded, and still is. Um, the basic research is shockingly poorly funded. Because it is like going upstream of diseases that we spend a fortune on, you know, and we wait for the disease to happen and then try to reverse it. I, I, there's so many analogies you could use. Like, I know a town that I lived nearby when I was a kid was flooded year after year after year. And you put sandbags on the floor or on the, you know, the doors of businesses and everything and the flood would come. They moved back up river a few miles and they widened the riverbed that's the end of the flooding. So it almost feels like it's that type of idea. Um, that rather than firefights, rather than we should at least spend some of our collective resources on the biology of aging. And that's the best way, or it's certainly a very valid way to target preventatively these diseases. And the benefits for society and for healthcare costs are just astronomical, even if it's partially successful. That's very interesting. You mentioned something that I have personally been struggling with as I try to convey my message, right? Of, of I've been experimenting with myself for a number of years now to try to have a better quality of life, to try to engage in practices that uh, at least are doc well documented, that allow me to feel better, that allow me to, to sleep better and, and to perform better physically, you know, more movement. And what I find is, is you mentioned the psychology of this. I find this resistance to good because of what's considered normal. And it's considered normal to just age, slow down, ache, become limited, and then fizzle away, right? So there, on one hand, there's this expectation that this is just what it is. This is what life is. You know, once you're past 50, it's all downhill. Okay. It's all not great. And when you start saying, well, no, that's not true. Look, you know, you, if you, if you stop eating these things, if you start doing these things, if you start moving in this particular way, if you start taking some of these supplements, if you start eating these types of foods, if you start meditating, if you start doing all these various things that are tied to, you know, body, mind and spirit, you can change your life. Yes. And and invest in aging research as well. You know, I'm just <laughs> of course. Going, I'm trying to add. I'm trying to add to it. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. I think the, the psychology of it is fascinating. So like there's there's plenty of studies, including the blue zone, where, where they, they see that really it's the the socialization component of it seems to be the most visible common denominator to these blue zones, that they have a sense of purpose, they're included, they're, you know, they're not putting a nursing home and left to die. Um, and 
all the kind of sedentary nature of life that comes with that. They walk on hills, they they have, you know, like I say, community roles. And there's another study, I, I don't know exactly what the study is called, but it's, it's this really widespread longitudinal study where they looked at asking people at, I think, like 60 or 65, how long they expected to live. And the people who expected to live longer, live longer, which sounds ridiculous until you think about, well, that reflects their optimism, their outlook in life, their psychological kind of baseline. Um, and it clearly has an effect on how you function, how you move, um, and how you stay fit and, and agile and all these other things throughout um, throughout your life. So I think that's that all of that stuff is amazing. I just think that it, it needs to be added to very substantially because there are people, we, we have agreement in longevity science, roughly speaking, to what goes wrong you know, in categories called the hallmarks of aging. These are the types of damage that accumulate. We've had agreement for 20 years as to how you would intervene on those types of damage. So not only do we know, uh, okay, I need to be careful how I speak here because <laughs> there are plenty of very serious people who will argue that there's no unknown unknowns, you know, um, and sure, fine. But generally there's an agreement that this is the main body of the type of damage and these are the interventions that would be required to halt or indeed reverse in some cases those types of damage and there's so much need for op- or, or room for optimism as well Raphael. like the body has repair mechanisms already um and, and some would argue that what happens is the, the repair mechanisms get into disrepair so rather than having to repair the whole system you repair the repair mechanisms and that helps an awful lot of things. So there's there's reasons for real optimism on, on, on um, you know, biology of aging research leading to interventions that will really slow down the accumulation of this damage and uh, the entrance of diseases. Um, and when you're talking about living well and living healthily, I guess that's always going to be desirable for psychological benefits. But at the moment, I think that's really desirable for giving us more time to avail of coming interventions, which with AI and with more money and everything else really seem to be speeding up every day. You mentioned something that reminded me of a conversation you and I had the last time you were here in in Lake Nona about certainty. And and, um, you and I see eye to eye on that, on this, we seem to get into these bandwagons and it seems to be more pronounced today than at least in my lifetime, where we get into these bandwagons of this is the way it is. And then someone else has a different bandwagon of this is the way it is and this is certain and the science here is settled and or the science is not settled. And next thing you know, we draw lines in the sand and then you got some people on one side and people on the other side and we can't get anything done. Are you experiencing that in your world of longevity or is it more of a collaborative type of environment where things are getting done? I guess compared to the world at large, it's really not bad. Um, but that's because the world at large is terrible when it comes to this. Um, and <laughs> yeah, it's, <clears throat> but I mean, it, it's a funny thing. When you look at the the real heroes we should have, the pe- people like, I don't know, an Einstein or a Carl Sagan, for example, there was zero certainty. 
from those giants. You know, there was just a childlike curiosity. So it's it's funny that the, the rest of us are so, are so certain about everything. And like we were discussing, yeah, evolutionarily, it makes sense, of course, that, you know, one person in, in our ancestors' tribe says there's a cliff. It is a cliff. I'm sure it's a cliff. Don't walk in that direction. But realistically, um, you know, we learned that we we don't know anything. Even if we touch a table, we don't really touch a table at a scientific level. The subatomic level, there's there's no such thing as touching really. And also our brains wiring and is it actually getting up a signal or is it essentially there is nothing. We really should be certain of nothing at all at all. But the fact that we're certain of so many things and we disagree on, on the certainty or even ourselves, I find it funny when I believe something to be true. And then two years later, I believe something contradictory to be true. But I never question myself. You know, <laughs> I never kind of say, yeah, I wonder if I could be wrong. When clearly I was wrong on one of those two occasions. You know what I mean? We retain the certainty in spite of the circumstance. Um, in this field, because you have scientists who are relatively good at using that method of interrogation and, and uh, changing opinions, um, I, I think it's pretty good. You do see some slightly entrenched positions as to what something is and what it isn't and how we test it and so on. But mostly it's a fairly open space. Um, and I think it needs, again, for my limited, my absent um, scientific knowledge, but from observing, I think it, it is important that we make progress and that we we work on the challenge ahead without getting too encamped into how we should progress um, and that we should absolutely keep open minds to somebody coming in with some, you know, really lateral thinking um, that can move the needle in this even more fastly than everything we're doing at the moment. Um, because reprogramming and other things have shown that. So you mentioned also when you were talking about the blue zones, I, I, that study is uh, to me is very fascinating because it highlights the importance of community. You know, you say, you know, people, people's mindset is very important because they do things together and they, they support each other. They're there for each other. So the mindset aspect is a very important part. Now, I experience that myself. I, I try to to do my best to to have a community around me and, and to be an active part of that community. Do you are you finding in in the work that you are surrounded by that things like mindset, things like meditation are of maybe great equal importance as the rest of the work that is being done or is it still something that is a nice to have from the work that you that you're surrounded by i i break it into the two categories again the the real aging biology of aging research is over here and then among all of the other things um that are current available lifestyle interventions i think mental health is being given <sighs> I was going to say equal status, maybe not, but it's definitely something that people are, you know, almost everyone is very aware of now as being very, very beneficial and not just conceptually, but this is, you know, there are biological macros that are measurable and we know that stress, for example, you know, has a, has a role obviously in, in inflammaging as it's called, um, and how much inflammation impacts on aging, um, 
And and look, we've known this for for forever. You you can see someone going through a really stressful period in, in life, a bereavement or something, and you can see them age in front of you. You know, in a matter of weeks or months, you look at them and you go, Jesus, um, this is aged the person. So there's there's even visible versions of that stress and detachment and just not being well mentally that that clearly has a biological impact and you know just like yoga and stretching your body and things are really important as you get older um because you're 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 losing muscle mass and so on um i think social connections learning as you get older is is immensely important so you know getting the neural connections active and exercising those muscles is very very important um and yeah, I think that's recognized. And I think even some of the protocols that are being developed by different clinics and, and, and so on um, include a portion of, of mental well-being. There's a school of thought along those lines that resilience is really the answer, right? Because like you said, the body, the body, the body knows how to do something very well, which is to heal. You know, you get a cut, it, you know, it heals. The body is always wanting to heal, right? And its ability to heal is directly related to its resilience, right? And its resilience is directly related to the ecosystem you built around the body. And that ecosystem is, is not just a physical ecosystem, but the mental ecosystem as well and the spiritual ecosystem as well, right? So you have that triage of body, mind, soul, and having a continuous challenge, right, of challenging your mind like you said challenging yourself physically builds on that on that resilience and i understand what you're saying that well yeah you know there's the biology on one side and then there's all these lifestyle things but it seems like more and more that has gone from a a relationship of correlation to a relationship of causality right where we know now like you said from markers and that if you do these things or if you don't do these things these biological processes are observably and measurably impacted one way or another and i think that that if anything that is that is a great success story of the movement is this to is, is to go from a well this is there's a correlation well okay uh, i prefer to see more of a causality relationship I mean, do you agree Yeah, no, 100%. And, and sorry, I'm, I'm not trying to distinguish between mental and, and biological. I'm just trying to distinguish between all of these things that are in our current repertoire and the need to invest in more stringent medical interventions that are on the horizon. Um, but yeah, no, I, I do think that there is a lot of investment in this now in matching up biomarkers with stress management and with mental health. And now that we can do it, it's an obvious thing to do. Because we want to track, like the, the reality of this whole space now is that it, it, it leans towards personalized medicine, um, preventive um, and personalized. And so rather than someone having a specific disease and you giving them a specific drug and then measuring the impacts, it's kind of complex to, to take because you're taking an N of one, you're taking Raphael all of his biomarkers, all of his omics, uh, maybe also kind of some sort of psychoanalysis, uh, coupling all of that together and then put, bringing in a whole repertoire of, of um, interventions. 
And the real measure there isn't to get a drug approved. The real measure is to have Raphael feel and measure better as time goes by. And the absolutely part of that is going to be the, the mental well-being. And I think that's very understood. And the technology keeps getting better really, really fast at that as well. How do we measure impacts? Um, how do we assess? And there is a kind of a psychiatrist role in that as well. But how do we assess um people's kind of ability to get into flow to have a sense of purpose um there's a huge industry already in this for kind of you know c-suite executives or whatever you know performance driven people mm. is already an enormous industry they pay you know crazy amounts of money to walk through this path of life how do they get into the the place where they're resilient but they're also dealing with stress the right way and they're also very productive and they're also family oriented and all of these these types of things so there is a model there for the rest of us to look at um if we can get access to it you know um and it does fit well with and like you say it's not all about being perfectly content in a spare ad nauseum you know you you do need to keep i think anyway i don't have you know any support for this really but i think you do need to be challenged in certain ways i think a sense of purpose is something that's found if you look at the blues on analysis uh that's found to be common but the social element is really really important like they don't live any of these people that groups of people not individuals because individuals will skewer this completely you'll have someone that gets you know a genetic lottery and lives to a very very long age and does everything wrong um which is kind of what we find with most older people. But again, like people often highlight, they say, oh, this person lives at such an age and they smoked. Yeah, but practically everybody smoked in the 1950s when this person was a young adult, you know? So again, I think we forget that time isn't happening just now. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do think that what we do find from studying groups of older people is even more so than the than the having a sense of purpose it's having a sense of community i is my understanding is that they're they're very much respected their opinion is sought they're seen as leaders regardless of the age and they're involved like they're they're involved in in the community's future um and again you know yourself anecdotally even with people that age having a sense of future having something to look forward to having uh, plans is uh so important and it does challenge the nursing home concept and i'm not suggesting that the facilities and everything else isn't very valid um, and i'm sure there are centers where this is done from with totally different outlooks but the idea that it's you know god's waiting room if presented like that can be really counterproductive Oh, I tend to agree with you. I think that there's there's better ways. In fact, I had a podcast a few episodes ago specifically talking about other ways to improve assisted living specifically for that purpose. We're running close to our time here, but I wanted to touch on something very important. You said, you know, the investment, investment aspect of this process. Obviously, you've been you've been in this for a while. Uh, you know, you're the CEO of a Longevity Events Limited, you know, company, and you're doing this Longevity Summit in Dublin. You've seen the investment grow in the space in 15 years, but like you said, nowhere near where it should be. What is ne what is needed 
to get to where we need to go? What are some of the things that you see we need to do collectively as, as a collective to get us to where we want to be from an investment point of view? I think an awful lot of it funnily is happening now. I mean, I know you can't be complacent, but it, it, it really, I was saying kind of jokingly to somebody recently that longevity feels like, like the Taylor Swift of the, the world at this moment. You know, it, it's just everywhere. Every time you, you open something or look at something, there's a documentary or there's somebody writing an article on it. So it is getting into the public consciousness, definitely. And that moves policymakers. And policymakers move industry. Some, it feels like it's the other way around sometimes. But if a government comes out, like the UK government came out a number of years ago uh, through very skillful management by Tina Woods and other, they came out and they, they wanted five additional healthy years by 2035. And they released a couple of hundred million. The couple of hundred million isn't really the thing that changes there. But what does change is everyone that's going to pitch an investor in the UK, I would bet has that on their pitch deck. Even the government supports has put, has committed. So you need kind of validation from groups and public interest will lead, I think, to the politicians, you know, are normally followers rather than leaders um, and they will follow public sentiment into something because then they have the confidence the public is going to support it. And away we go. Because this is, you know, it, it's, it's difficult for politicians to come out and say, I support longevity. Three years ago, it would be impossible. It's still somewhat difficult. All of that, I think, is occurring. But I'm still worried about what is understood to be longevity in that context. So if it's that we should stop smoking and eat better and meditate, we've known that for a long time. And we've done it to an extent. I mean, it, it you could always do that more, but certainly smoking has been an enormous turnaround um, from from practically everybody. Over 50% of people smoking, a lot of, of the countries we're familiar with, um, and that has dropped, you know, precipitously in, in the last number of decades. So that's great, and that is absolutely a valid part of this story. But the more substantial interventions that we understand theoretically and beyond theoretically in some cases – it should be targeting damage repair as a way to prevent diseases. That's a huge shift because that doesn't necessarily have an endpoint. Like if you prevent road accidents, right? So if someone dies in a road accident, you know, we're, we're, a lot of us are familiar with how unbelievably tragic that is for the people involved, first and foremost, but then their families and extended communities, etc. If you prevent that road accident, that particular family doesn't come back and thank you because they don't know. So it, the, the feedback on prevention is not as clear. So it is a more difficult message to sell in some ways than I have a drug that will cure you. Here, you have a disease, now you have a cure. So we've got to get people to appreciate that they need to maintain good health, regardless of their date of birth. And we need to find feedback mechanisms for that. And I think those are available. I mean, you know, we were discussing the last time I met you, Raphael, that I do a bit of running. I don't run very well, but everyone that runs seems to be around my age. None of us are going to the Olympics, but geez, do we love a PR, you know? And the PR is embarrassingly <laughs> slow to people that are proper runners. It's, it's a quick walk to those people. But to us, it's a huge thing. Now, how nice it would be to continue into your 50s and 60s chasing PRs. 
rather than, like you said at the start of this, the understanding of the decline. Um, so whether it's feedback like that, as opposed to you are not getting Alzheimer's right now, your PR is getting faster. Maybe that's what moves the needle here. I'm not sure. But I think conceptually, prevention and damage repair is just one of the most important kind of pieces of thinking that we've had as a as a species almost. It's bizarre that we didn't think of it before, to be honest. Um, but I, I And I would say one other thing, like if I'm listening to this podcast and I have no knowledge of, of longevity or the science of aging, um, this sounds like something people have been talking about for thousands of years and, you know, why, why now and why? To be perfectly honest with you, any superficial dig at the science will show you that like 50 years ago, so, sorry, 70 years ago, actually 70 years ago this year, we, we discovered the structure of DNA, you know? And in 2000, we, we mapped the first human genome. Anything, if you go back a century or two centuries, to talk about disease management is nonsensical. It's like a mechanic telling you that they're going to fix a problem with your car when they don't know how to open the boot or the, the trunk or whatever you guys call it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, it, it, we, we knew so little about the body at such a basic level that, of course, we couldn't make progress on this any sooner. But it is a very, very, very big complex system, but it is finite. And us and our, our little helpers, uh, AI and computation, are making serious inroads. Um, and like I say, conceptually, this notion of damage repair is so important. So that's a very, very long-winded answer, I appreciate. But I, I, I just I want to continue to kind of beat that particular drum that, yes, there is huge focus on longevity now. Money is pouring into it, which is great, but it's exclusively pouring into the are, are largely pouring into the lifestyle intervention side of it. And a good chunk of that should be going towards basic research. Just like a good chunk of what we spend on healthcare should be moving towards, call it preventive medicine, call it whatever makes you comfortable to open your, your checkbook, you know? But yeah, the, the, real, the real benefits for all of us as time goes by are to be found in, in aging research. That's fantastic. No, I, I do appreciate that answer because it is comprehensive and it actually brings us, you know, to to a good ending point on, on the podcast. You know, thank you so much, Martin. Where can people find more about you and your work? Well, at the moment, um, the LEV Foundation, um, I'm, I'm fortunate to work with the LEV Foundation, uh, who do an amazing study currently, Robust Mouse Rejuvenation. Um, which I, I should have talked about a little bit more, but I can. People can look it up. It's the most important mice in the world at the moment. I think they're getting multiple interventions, and the story so far is very, very, very exciting. But there should be like not again. I shouldn't be, I suppose, using this as a, a call for money. But if I had nothing to do with it, I would still say conceptually, when we spend trillions of dollars on things, that we should spend a few million on, on projects like this. Um, in any event, um, people can absolutely look at LEV Foundation. Um, and the Longevity Summit Dublin, everyone is welcome. Um, it's, I'm told it's successful. There's no point, or that it's enjoyable. There's no point me saying that because that's a bit. Um, but yeah, people seem to like it. It's, it. it's a good event, you know, experience. Um, uh, but also the science is accessible but top-notch like we we it's literally the best people in the planet come to speak there thankfully well i look forward to 
partaking in that, you know, for the next one. Thank you, Martin. I know you're going to be back in Lignona soon, so I'm looking forward to catching up with you when you're back. Thank you for the work that you're doing. I find this not only fascinating, but necessary, very important. So I thank you and, the, and your team and the people that you work with for all this work. And thank you for your time. And I hope that you have safe travels. Cheers. Thanks very much, Rafael.